everyone, and welcome back to today's episode of the Remedial Studies Podcast. Today, we are going to be diving into uh, that really nice middle ground between classic and modern and neither, Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. I am also joined um, by Hannah. I'm Rachel. I forgot to say my own name. We haven't recorded in a while, uh, so sometimes you forget how to do your podcast if you don't do it for a while. Do you find that experience universal, Hannah? I do. I don't ever know what I'm doing. That's also fair. That that presupposes that we ever knew what we were doing. Uh, I just fix it in post and move on. <laughs> That's the best we can do. But yeah, so today we're talking about a book. Um, I know you, but you bothered me. Bothered sounds bad, but you bothered me for a while to read it until I finally gave in, like most recommendations you give me. Bothering is accurate, though. It kind of is. I approach all of my relationships with a loving, nagging kind of thing. <laughs> yes, it's loving. It is loving. I definitely think that's fair. I remember I, I had your copy of Lolita yes. for like eight months, but you knew where I lived, so it was okay. I wasn't reading it at that time. That was the one with the mustache on it, wasn't it? Yes, I drew a mustache on my copy of Lolita. Uh, that might be a good place to start, actually, why I drew the mustache on my copy of Lolita. So Lolita covers are really interesting um, to me to begin with, but I read this book in college uh, as part of my canonicity class, which you all have heard about before. But um, the, the cover of Lolita that I had is the cover where it's half of a pair of lips and like one nostril. There's a history, I think, in art and what reminded me of this and why I don't like it, this cover is because Rodin got in trouble for this. Um, if you're not familiar with Rodin, he did The Thinker. Rodin got in trouble with this is because he created a lot of female figures without heads, hands, or feet, which is problematic because... It's troubling. The most important parts of a woman are generally should be considered her head, where her brain and her eyes live. So anytime you cut out a figure's eyes and you just leave it as like an orifice, I am concerned. A lot of Lolita covers have worse problems, but I yeah, but yeah, they do. <laughs> they have so much worse problems. Like they depict cartoon naked children. They depict girls in very sexy poses. Even though they're, like, 12. Yes. That's the main thing is that, like, that bothers me about that. So I drew a mustache on it to protest and make ridiculous. <laughs> Direct action. This fragmentation of female identity. I think that is a really good place to start. I had no idea about any of that until you explained it to me. <laughs> yes. As, as in most things, but it is the commodification and the fragmentation of the female body is very interesting, largely because it remains unchanged to this day. I'm scre- I refrain from actually screaming, but I'm screaming. <laughs> You're always screaming in your head. Well, because I remember to, to kind of bring in some Lolita-inspired unfortunately things that have happened in culture more recently is i remember uh i don't remember how old she was i think she was like 16 but dakota fanning participated yes. in a mark jacobs campaign for one of his perfumes and it was very much based on lolita and like it was intensely suggestive and people were like can you not but he, like, specifically references her as a Lolita and as, like, a nymph. I don't think he used the term nymphette, Ugh. but, like, the definition he gave led to that word. Yes. So that's a that's a word that's used in the context of the book that is truly disgusting because, and I want to be clear, I love this book. It is very beautifully written. But where I have problems and where I get angry is everyone's willful and shallow interpretation of the novel as a love story. So the issue that I take with the term nymphette's 
used in the book, and I think it's highly intentional on the part of the author, is that it shifts the uh, it shifts the agency and the cause of the problem from this unreliable narrator, Humbert Humbert, to the girls. It's the girl's fault that he's like this. It's some quality in them. And I think we see that reflected in the cover art for this book is that they are making the girls sexy. And I don't believe for one second that Lolita, or I say Lolita, but her name is Dolores. Let's be very clear that her name is Dolores. Yeah, she has a name. And it's not Lolita. I don't ever believe that Dolores was sexy. I don't. I have been 12. I've been 13 and 14. I have never in my goddamn life met a sexy preteen. No, they're not. And any attempt on a man or society in general's part to sexualize young girls is inexcusable. And to blame the girls for for that is also incredibly disgusting to me. Yeah, it it is in essence victim blaming. Yes. And how the solution people usually have when they take part in things like that is not, hey, this man should not have raped this 12-year-old woman or girl. Pardon me. (laughs) Girl. Like, she's a child. He should not have done this irreprehensible thing. Like, she instead should have not seduced him, even though there was no action on her part to even suggest that that was something she wanted to do. Right. And I think it's suggested in the book, mind you, by the highly unreliable narrator, that Dolores has a crush on him. However. Which, like, again, I've been 12. That's, I believe that. Mm-hmm. I believe that she would have had a crush on him. No crushes I ever had when I was 12 ever escalated to that. No, certainly not. That's not how being 12 or 13 or even 14 really yeah, because doesn't when when she finally leaves him, isn't she like almost almost fifteen? I I think so. Like she's about to age out of his his little of his preferred demographic. Yes, because so. I think he even mentions that is is that he? I mean, he constantly obviously it's the title of the book. He constantly refers to her as Lolita. He doesn't call her Dolores, which is her name. And when he refers to her aging out, it is she stops being Lolita. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like Lolita for him, as it has become in um, in the decades since this book was published, is an archetype and is a type of person. It is not an individual. Right. And I think that's another thing that you can get out of this book other than it being a love story. And I don't for a second believe that Humbert Humbert ever loved anyone. Oh, absolutely not. I think it, for him, it was about owning something and controlling something, not not about it being a person oh absolutely i think he totally got off on being her sole connection to the rest of the world Mm -hmm. in every conceivable way like socially financially like like he almost literally if not literally owns her right and it's kind of supported in the text too because he talks about his first wife and when his first wife decides to leave him he is waiting for them to be alone so that he can hurt her Mm -hmm. because she made a decision that did not involve him and he he literally says that he was waiting for them to be alone so that he could hurt her and he's actively waiting for this but the man that she's leaving him for comes upstairs uh with them and they're never alone so i don't for one second believe that he is capable of any goodness. Oh no, whatsoever. absolutely not. He's he's disgusting. Like like I remember because the copy you have, the copy I read, has that quote from Vanity Fair on it that haunts my nightmares. And it's it's something like the it's this is the only convincing love story of our generation. It's something like that. It's I'm looking at it, and you're really close. It's. The only convincing love story of our century. That's it. I knew it was generation or century. And that goes into a point that I want to talk about. Because I think that's where we really start to see 
how this book has been interpreted by the broader public or how it is most clearly portrayed by the broader public we we talk a lot the taylor swift episode um was probably one where we talked about it the most we talk a lot about the interaction between audience and artist and how the creation of meaning really is kind of a relationship and how authorial intent is ultimately not that interesting to talk about this book is sort of my personal exception to that rule that i keep to myself just because i really do think that interpretation is so much more reflective of the 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 culture in which it has been read in the past 50 years versus anything Vlad- vladimir and Nabokov ever sat down to write right well here's the thing there are wrong answers. Yes. And if you get out of this that this is a, a sincere love story between a middle-aged man and a 13-year-old girl, one, I cannot help you. You can't find your answers here, bud. I cannot. I have nothing for you. Please leave. But <laughs> you're warned in the foreword. There's a foreword to this book, and it's not a real foreword. It's a fake foreword that Nabokov wrote, and you were warned in the foreword. Much like the fake footnotes. Yes. You are warned. You should know, reading this, that this is not a love story. It's all in the foreword. I think where people get tripped up is the prose is mm-hmm. beautiful. Uh, it is It is truly no, one of my favorite things about Nabokov is he's obviously a man who loves words. He knows how to use words. He knows how to make words do things that just, it's like, it's like a blossoming in your brain when you read it. Like, it's so wonderful what he does with words. And I think part of the point of this book is that it's so beautiful, but you as a reader have to be able to see that he's basically showing off. He's saying, like, here is this ugly, ugly thing. I am making it beautiful. But you have to recognize as a reader that beauty does not equal goodness. Right. In any sense. And I know there's, it's in the first couple of paragraphs that everyone always quotes. You can always count on a murderer for a fancy prose style, which I think is one of my favorite lines in the whole book. If you take it and then like take that with you through the whole book. Yes. The whole time I'm like waiting, the whole time I'm reading this book, I'm waiting to see who he murdered. And like, I was for sure, I was for sure that it was going to be. Dolores's mom. Oh, I thought I thought he was going to kill her, and I thought he was going to kill her mom, or maybe somebody who he, he wasn't he when he was super paranoid about people following them, and like the road trips to all the different hotels. I'm like, he's going to kill somebody and leave them in a ditch somewhere, and that's how it's going to come full circle. Oh man, but yeah, I spent the whole book wondering who's he going to murder. Like that's always in the back of my head is that this man is in jail. For being a murderer, and he has every reason to want to cultivate, as a narrator, the character, he has every reason to want to cultivate sympathy Mm -hmm. and empathy uh, because that's all, he's sort of at the mercy of the reader, or otherwise he's just a child rapist. Exactly. It is, it's completely manufactured, which is brilliant on the part of Humbert Humbert and brilliant on the part of Nabokov that he manufactures something deeper out of something that is very simple and very shallow yes does that make sense yes I think he believes his own his His own, own hype his own hype to a certain thank you his own hype to a certain degree because I think he thinks that he really loves her, but there's nothing about anything that he does that is loving because I, I feel that love isn't about words. You can say all the words you want to say that you love someone, that you care about them, but at the end of the day, they're just words. Never in the book does he demonstrate anything that actually would constitute a loving action. I would agree with that, and I think a lot of what disturbs me about his vision of love that we know from the beginning is inaccurate is it is demonstrated in his mind almost solely by ownership yes 
and love is I I am in my 25 years of life on this planet am, I have arrived at the conclusion that love is not about ownership and it's not about belonging to someone as romanticized as that idea from the harmless to the really really harmful has has been like it is that is ultimately at any level unhealthy mm-hmm. it's also carries through to the various actions and degrees of sexual violence that he carries out in the book that he rarely mentions but they're there well he never mentions them as violence i should say no it's never rape certainly not to it's him. never rape it's never abuse to him the one thing I always remember is when they're at, it's one of the hotels they stay at, and the lady at the front desk's, desk asks him, asks him if he got, if, it's something like if he got into a fight with a cat, because he has all the long scratches on yes. his arms yes. from where she tried to get away from him. Yes. And it was like, that was one of the big moments that I was like, it's not, like, it's subtle, but it's not. It's hidden in plain sight. Yes. If you are paying any attention whatsoever Mm -hmm. it's there it's very clear yeah maybe i had an unfair advantage because i read it as part (laughs) of a class but i think even by that time in my life i the people you need to look out for are often the ones who (laughs) who are like this particular man (laughs) this particular man i would agree with that if we really want to make the personal political which it is it kind of goes back to the age-old adage of hashtag not all men and it's like okay not all men but any man but enough men but enough men and that's become something that has that has been reborn through the me too movement and how the castle of men like Harvey Weinstein is kind of starting to come down, even though Woody Allen and Roman Polanski still have jobs, <sighs> which I have opinions about. Oh boy, do I have opinions about that. But I, I, I totally agree to kind of bring that back to the prose style. It's gorgeous. I mean, like he, I mean, like Vladimir Nabokov is an exceptionally talented author. Like, I, everything he writes is, like, goals. But it's, it almost reads, if you kind of look at it in a certain way, where you try to see the, the, essentially the evil inside the beauty. It's almost like, I've been doing some research into monster movies lately, because the whole history of the monster film genre is very interesting to me. But the whole thing about what as a culture we view as monstrous yes has changed over the past century especially on film is really really interesting because i think you can translate that same kind of view to books even though they're not a visual medium um but like you see like the old universal monster movies that it's it's all like the frankenstein's monster and mummy and wolfman and the the thing from the black lagoon and all these visually horrifying monsters unless beauty is a part of their whole thing like vampires are um some vampires the whole theme of the vampire and like the beauty and the soul-sucking evil wrapped inside a beautiful and appealing package it reminded me a lot of how he chose to write this book because it is, I, I, I can see how if you don't read any deeper, and as frustrated as I get with people who don't read deeper, I can see be, how you can be taken in by that. Mm-hmm. And how it is a trap. Yes. Very carefully set. I don't know if Nabokov really thought he was going to catch quite so many people. I I hope he didn't. I mean, it's, looking back, it's not that surprising. Mm. unfortunately because it is and that's a wider cultural problem i feel that we will not fix on our podcast but it is <laughs> yeah unfortunately we will try our best but it, it is the equitability between beauty and goodness is something that has existed particularly in western culture 
from Time Immemorial. Yeah. The thing, another thing that this reminded me of, and I don't remember the sculptor and I feel terrible about that, but there was a particular statue of Lucifer after he fell from grace where they had they made him go back and redo it because he was too hot and um he made him even hotter but like it's that whole thing about like uh, the evil and i think um there's probably some lines in paradise lost that are about this too that's sticking in my brain for some reason where like the devil was an angel at one point and he was just as beautiful and just as loved but he still had what they viewed as evil inside him. And and to have a church essentially tell you, not that hot, please, dear God, not that hot, is, is indicative of what we equate with beauty. Mm-hmm. And what beauty is to us. And I think that's a theme that sort of runs pretty deep in this book. Even, like, Humbert Humbert focuses almost exclusively on, like, looks and, like, pre-sexual female secondary sex characteristics. Yes. He focuses so much on this, like, shell of what he wants this sexual partner to be that it's almost like what's in it doesn't matter. Like, who the actual person is does not matter. Because he wants that perfect package. I think he actually uses the word shell at one point does he i do think so i'll have to find it no i think that's totally accurate all of his depictions of dolores every way that he describes her they're highly focused on on phys- on her physical appearance he also describes her as like a difficult moody child but like he's also abusing her right so what did you expect that's another thing we can talk about with this book that goes both to content and in interpretation is is expectation because I I came into this book you had read it and you had like explained it to me in the barest terms. I think you wanted me to kind of go into it with not a whole lot of an opinion already. Mm-hmm. I did my best to, but like over the course of the book, my expectations were sort of changed. As the book went on, because I was like, oh, is he a murderer? Oh, this is, like, really pretty? I don't really know what's going on. But, like, as, especially after her, did he, he, did he kill her mother or did she just die? I don't remember. No, so she, here's the thing about this that was so crazy and I was just left sitting there stunned. So he, the mother is kind of stupid. I'm not going to lie to you. She is pretty vacant. Yes. She cannot see two feet in front of her uh, in terms of what's going on. I hope as a parent, I'm not like this. Anyway, she... Good God, I hope not. She falls in love. In love. I'm putting that in so many... A picture just four sets of scare quotes. (laughs) Anyway, the mother falls in love with uh, Humbert Humbert. And she writes him a, a letter confessing her feelings and asking him to he boards at their house that's how this all this whole thing is set up and and how he discovers all of this i don't even know but anyway he's boarding at their house the mother falls in love with him she writes him a letter that's like you must leave because i love you and you obviously have no affection for me and like it can only lead to ruin and if you're at the house when i get back because she's dropping dolores off at summer camp uh and if you're at the house when i return like it must mean that you, like, return my feelings ardently or whatever. Some, it's very... The way you do. Anyway, so he, like, is about to, like, bolt because he's like, I can't do this. And then he realizes <laughs> that if he marries this woman, he will have unfettered access to her daughter and will have all kinds of excuses to put his hands on her and be around her alone and just all kinds of gross yeah stuff and anyway so they get married while dolores is off at summer camp and the mother while dolores is at summer camp so they're not married very long uh she finds a journal that he was keeping that details yes i do remember this yes that details all of his thoughts on her daughter 
And she showing some, I was almost afraid that she would just ignore it because I think there are people out there, sadly, that would rather pretend there is not a problem than have- Than than face it head on. Than actually deal with it and like have their lives ruined. So she is about to like go like do something to like- take care of this problem because while she's not that smart and she's sort of self-centered she's not a complete monster so she's like (laughs) rushing out of the house to like go telephone somebody or tell somebody and she gets hit by a car yes it's like some fucked up twist of fate shit yes so i fully expected him to murder her but she just gets hit by a car randomly It'd be like that sometimes. Anyway, um, unfortunately, because she didn't get to tell anybody about the journal, that means that Humbert Humbert is now Lolita. I say Lolita. Dolores Hayes' legal guardian. Yeah, he's now Dolores Hayes' legal guardian. Yeah, so that's how that unfolds. And it goes about as well for Dolores Hayes, as you might expect. Yes, there are so many people who consider themselves good, well-meaning people who will turn a blind eye and who won't do anything because it's like we don't want to look too close because we're afraid of what we'll see or what will happen. Yes. And the, the change that may or may not come at the end of the day. That's what really concerns me about the more recent conversations regarding sexual assault in the film industry and beyond is that while people are listening, ultimately nothing will be heard Mm -hmm. and nothing will change. Right. I think it's like if you if you are looking and you see something, suddenly you are complicit and partially responsible. And I think people people don't want to deal with that or what that means so it's sort of Mm -hmm. a forced ignorance that is to protect them from having to do something right exactly it is like turning a blind eye like you release yourself from the onus of having to do anything about this situation because you don't want to get involved or you don't want to be a part of it or it's not your business which is one of my least favorite phrases in the English language, because who else's business is it going to be? Is sort of where, where I've arrived at as, as an individual. I know that's very hashtag lawful good, but like it has to be someone's business. Yes. And it has to be someone's problem, because if it never is, it's never going to be noticed and it's never going to be fixed. Right. I don't think anybody I knew came up with it, but someone read about it. And I think the specific example that was used was the story of the Phantom of the Opera is if you switch the genders of the people involved in that story and make it be a woman who is older and more experienced and who is the monster and who preys upon the young male ingenue, like no one would ever accept that. Like, and they shouldn't. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, nobody would ever... It it is fundamentally not treated the same way. Yes. Because a woman is the aggressor. That's a whole other issue we could talk about. Oh, right. Because women are... Can be and are aggressors. Yes. And women can and are pedophiles. Most of the high... Higher profile things that go, quote unquote, viral. Regard... Finn Wolfhard just had... Let this fucking kid just be 15. Let all the kids from Stranger Things just be kids. But there was a woman who was like our age. She was like 24 or something. And she sent him a tweet that was something like, hit me up in four years or something. And the stark gender divide in responses to that was obviously not 100% one-to-one. But like, it seemed like other men even ones that weren't that young were like oh you should take it as a compliment (laughs) and like all this other stuff and then women were like can you fucking not Uh uh-huh i honestly do believe in this if this book had a female protagonist first of all it would never have been published i'm just gonna (laughs) 
call that shot. It never would have been published. And it would never have achieved the, like, modern, classic, meditation on love sort of situation that this book finds itself in today. There's a thing that you see in books sometimes about when a boy transitions into manhood, he will... I say lose, but he has sex with a much older, more experienced woman, and that transitions him into manhood, even if maybe he's too young. Like, I have read these things happening at it, like, in the age right. that Dolores is in this book. Every time I see that, I am horrified. It's gross. That is dumb. It is. It's so gross. So, I don't know. I think that's part of it, too, is, like, for a boy to have relations with a much older woman is seen as a as a coming of age ritual or something like girls get their periods boys have sex for the first time i don't know it is it's gross to go back to your point about horror and beauty and how the two are not mutually exclusive the whole book is gross and it should be because yes. that is that is the point. But the the fact that we even though it is it is entirely constructed by this unreliable narrator, it is so easy and possible to wrap that gross exterior in a beautiful shell and to almost sell it. Mm-hmm. Well, right. And even like as we're talking, like we're calling Dolores Lolita. Like it's that powerful of a of a game, of a ploy. I don't I don't know how to explain it. And we're super conscious, I think, of what's going on, but we're still buying into that reality a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I think that's fair. Unfortunately, well, I mean, whether we want to or not, I think that even just the repetition of the name Lolita throughout the yeah. book has a kind of power. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and the language in the book is a super, there's a physicality to it because he, the narrator, Humbert Humbert, describes how the words, like the movements you use with your mouth to make the words, like that's in that very famous opening paragraph. He talks about like actually doing that. I think there's something about reading that that makes you mime it. I do. Every time I read it. Right, and so here is this narrator who has already convinced you to give up something, which is following this this tasting of the name in your mouth. Yes, that's a good phrase. The actual physical movement and how, like, there's a lot of mouths in this book, I feel, not just on the covers. <laughs> yes, no, that's accurate i mean i think blank which gets talked about a little bit there's a there's an awareness to the book when the quote you mentioned like expect a fancy pro style from a murderer Mm -hmm. and like clarence don't cut this it's awareness of itself as a text and i don't know that it's going to be something that is going to be read by someone yes because he talks often about a jury Mm mm-hmm in the forward, does it say if he's ever actually on trial or if he's just, like, submitting this as, like, this is my side of it? He died before the trial. Yes. He died before the trial, unfortunately. If only so, then he could never see real justice. He wasn't on trial for anything that he did. That's a good point. I mean, he was on trial for murdering, which he did do, but he was never on trial for the thing that consumes most of the book, which is his abuse of this girl. Yes. So I think that's very telling as well. Yes. I've never thought about that before. About how what he is in essence confessing to has nothing to do with the crimes of which he's been committed. Accused, excuse me. Yes. Yes. I think he's trying to use, in a weird way, he's so passionate and driven to murder because of his feelings for this girl and it's not it just doesn't it doesn't make him any more sympathetic it really doesn't and and i think that is what so much of the book even again that that opening paragraph where he talks about like even like he talks about her precursors there's this 
multiplicity of self almost at play. He he wants to make this vision of himself for this jury, regardless of whether they're actually trying him for the crimes he is confessing to, even though he doesn't see them as crimes. He wants to create this vision of this sympathetic, seduced man who was just madly in love with this young girl. And it's really not his fault. And it's really just, you know, it's just so tragic. I think that's what really irks me. That's the biggest interpretation that irks me so much is people don't think it's a tragedy because Dolores Hayes was brutally raped and abused by her stepfather. They think it's a tragedy because he lost her. Well, and then I think, too, the creation, that name, that is his name for her. He has created mm-hmm. Lolita. It has nothing to do with who Dolores, this girl, actually is. It's right. all a fiction. It says something about all relationships, not just this heavily unhealthy, abusive relationship, but that sometimes what we're really what we're really having feelings about when we talk about relationships and and romantic relationships, I think especially, is not the person in everything that a person is, but like this idea of the person that we have created. I'd agree with that. And I think this book at the end of the day, I do not believe it's a meditation on love because as we've stated multiple times over the course of this episode, Humbert Humbert is incapable of any kind of meaningful love. It is, in essence, I think, a meditation on personhood and how we define that for ourselves and for others and the own and the ownership we take over those we take over those things. I mean, I think that is definitely one of the things Mm -hmm. happening for sure. I think for me, I mean, I'm a, a cognizant, I guess, of what Nabokov's end goals are as a writer, whether or not he achieves them in this novel or not. Mm hmm. He was very concerned with aesthetic. It's art for art's sake. And, I mean, it's it's art. And it's very beautiful. But he does not totally escape having a moral message. And right. it's that veneer of aesthetic. You shouldn't mistake it for, for goodness or, or truth. Uh-huh. Isn't there something where like beauty is truth or something or truth is beauty and, oh, and they're man. somehow it's something like that and I'm like 90% positive it's an Oscar Wilde quote. But I think this book is an ultimate truth and beauty are not equivalent. Right. I would agree with that. I think this book frustrates me. I am defo one of those people like I'm that bitch English major that tries to find something deeper in everything. And even if it, it, depending on the occasion, may not be there. As I've mentioned before on this show, I have some experience with the wonderful monster on your back that is mental illness. And a big part of the particular brand of depression that I've had and still deal with, it doesn't really go away, is it sucks meaning out of things. And when there's no meaning to anything, you don't get anything out of it and there's no reason for it to be there. Um, and I'm, I was reminded while I was reviewing my thoughts of what I wanted to talk about today about a quote from Carrie Fisher, who was very public in her battle with her own mental demons, why she made jokes about it all the time. And she said, it has to be funny or it's just true. And that's not acceptable. And I think what I always got out of that if you don't get something out of it, then it just happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of me bleeds through into my own reading of the book because I don't think I want to accept that this person, fictional as she may be, went through this horrible, horrible thing and ultimately nothing happened because of it. And I think me not wanting to accept that leads to me wanting there to be some kind of meaning. Mm -hmm. Regardless, I mean, you know, authorial intent ain't shit. I know that. But, like, it it is a difficult thing for me to shake. Even though I, like, I get, I get it. Like, I get his whole thing about aesthetics and wrapping things that 
are horrible and true and equal measure in very pretty packages, I still don't want to accept it. Right. You know, it's interesting because another writer who was like this but kind of approached it from the opposite angle was Oscar Wilde. Yes. Uh, The person who is responsible for the truth uh, is beauty, beauty, truth is uh, Keats, which he would. Keats, he would. That is, that is, that's a very romantic capital R notion too. Right. But Oscar Wilde came at this from the opposite direction in a lot of his plays Mm -hmm. is that he did very beautiful things with words, but his plays were very frivolous and very funny Mm -hmm. and very topical, um, which is a totally different tack than taking pedophilia and writing about it in this prose style. Right. Anyway, I'm glad you reminded me of Oscar Wilde and Keats. I know we both really like the romantics. Yeah, we do. That crazy boy band. (laughs) I feel like in a weird way, not a weird way, but I feel like in a way we're kind of rejecting a lot of romantic sentiments because they're not useful. (laughs) I would say that's fair. Keats especially. I love Keats. He was a very good poet. He died way too young, as as you do when you're a romantic <laughs> poet. They all did. As much as I very much admire the romantics, I think their place should remain where they came, when they came from. Because it, it is ultimately, I think, in discussing these kind of topics and the ab- abhorrent underbelly of human nature or the society that we live in, or what have you. It it is easy to disprove a lot of romantic notions, like especially in the whole beauty is truth thing. It is, I don't want to say interesting, (laughs) it is interesting that we have an aversion to something that almost seems like it's from a more idealistic time, because there is no way to idealize the events in the book people try people try really hard and they're wrong they're wrong you're just you're wrong we're telling you you can get anything out of a book that you want except this particular thing (laughs) yeah that is ultimately a reflection of you and you have to work on that yeah we'll be here when you get back yeah we got all day it's a hard book, I think, at the end of the day. I, I do think it, it, it deserves the wide readership and study it's gotten because I think it is a book that has, regardless of what Vladimir Nabokov would say, I think it does. it is a book that has a lot to say. If only because it is interpreted within the cultural context that we are currently living in. Yeah, it's an important book, not just for its inherent value as a piece of art, but also the role that it has played in culture and popular culture at large. Yes. So, final thoughts on the novel. Final thoughts on the novel? Yes. It is a lot. (laughs) It's a lot, and I tend to get, as evidenced throughout this episode, I tend to get very angry and very frustrated when I talk about it because I get very angry and very frustrated with how it is it is read and discussed and how it has been dispersed by those who've read it into pop culture but i think if you take it as as a piece of art it is beautiful and it is horrible and that is especially for the time that it was written before that sort of became a hot button topic is a great achievement and i keep coming back to it which I think is the mark of a very of a really good piece of art is it's it's you keep coming back to it and you keep finding new things that you think about it and that you want to talk about and that you want to just explore deeper. So in in that sense, I I think the last thought I had, because correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it does often earn the accolade of modern classic. Hmm. Yes. We've talked briefly about how there is a distinct difference between something being classic and something being good. Yes. And I don't really think um, Vladimir Nabokov is in the business of writing good books as we see them. Does that make sense? Like, like he's not 
like as again with like the whole aesthetics thing like it is it's not a priority and i think in that sense because it is not the focus of the piece of art it almost becomes a good book because it's something that exists outside of your expectations for it i think as a novel it's something that pushes you as a reader i'd agree with that to take responsibility for your interpretations whether that's for good or for ill i think that's ultimately what i enjoy about the novel because in a way because it is fiction it sort of absolves you of some responsibility yeah but not all responsibility That's something, to kind of jump off that point, that is something that I've seen be discussed a bit more in um, transformative works, like fan fiction. Mm -hmm. It's a perennial discussion, but it's something that has come up. I've noticed it come up more often. I don't know if the people I'm just following on the various social medias are talking about it more. But it's always the, the big two I always really see it talked about are pedophilia and incest yes which are intensely taboo subjects for good reason and how if you engage in those sort of relationships in fiction does it then absolve you of any kind of responsibility in reality even though fiction and a work of fiction cannot really be separated from the reality in which it exists but you know how people say oh well fiction is fiction and reality is reality i think this what this book not necessarily what anything on the page does, not necessarily anything Nabokov would have intended. The interpretation and acceptance of the book into a modern canon and how that has been dispersed throughout pop culture really proves that it isn't and that fiction can and will impact how we see reality. I think what the book does in a way, whether or not it's intended or not, we don't really care about that here, I guess is it asks you as a reader to examine what is and isn't acceptable and why isn't it acceptable. And in what context are certain things acceptable? I think it goes back to our problem with truth is beauty, beauty truth, Mm -hmm. and that you can make something beautiful, but that doesn't mean that it makes it true. I think I get what you're saying, um, but correct me if I'm wrong, about uh, the whole truth is beauty and the romantic notion that everything that is pure and good, that that pureness and that goodness must also show on the surface, is yes. a- an ideal that does not translate to our modern culture. Because it, it, it has become almost like a trope. Yes. And how there will always be fair maidens and white knights and the goodness of everything will just shine right out of your face but that is in in a lot of circumstances in a lot of situations not true and very harmful it's very harmful so i think that's kind of where the novel on that moral scale comes down for me is like there's nothing about the novel as a piece of art that's that is to me morally good or morally bad as i know some people won't read it because it is depicting things that as a society we rightfully consider to be disgusting Mm -hmm. is the artwork then in itself disgusting that's an interesting point the things that happen in the novel are definitely disgusting and morally reprehensible, but I'm not sure that the novel itself then becomes morally reprehensible. I think it's only if you buy Humbert Humbert's hype that what he is doing is out of love, out of passion, out of this obsession that he fell into because he was seduced or there are these nymphettes or whatever only if you're buying into that hype 
can you see it in the light that it's supporting the idea that these things are acceptable? But I don't think the novel itself actually is saying that any of this is acceptable in any way, shape, or form. I would agree with that. I think that that's a good point because, um, and, and this comes up every time anywhere bans a book, is, which I do not support the banning of books in 99.9% of cases. I, I remember the one, the specific instance that always comes up because it's always the hot button one is To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a book written to make you uncomfortable about uncomfortable ideas about race relations in America. Like, that is the point. And when schools especially ban it because it will lead to uncomfortable conversations, they're doing a disservice to that art. And I think that's something that you could also, in a way, apply to this book, is that I agree with you. I don't think the novel itself in any way, shape, or form supports um, Humbert's worldview or that his behavior is acceptable to completely shut it out because solely because of the subject matter and not considering why that subject matter is presented in the way it is is doing a disservice to the art which is something i don't believe vladimir nabokov would be down with considering how into aesthetics he was all right, y'all, that will do us for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you all coming in, hanging out with us, as we say, interesting over and over and over again. <laughs> for an hour of your time. For an hour. Every two weeks. <laughs> Every two weeks. Uh, we really love doing this. We love hearing from you. If you would like to shout about this episode, you can reach us on our Tumblr, which is remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. You can reach us via email at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us via Twitter at, at remedialstudies. No podcast there. Not enough characters. Damn it, Twitter. Anyway, uh, this episode, I was going to say it was brought to you by, but we don't have sponsors. <laughs> nobody wants to sponsor our show i have no that sound is so sesame street and i love it <laughs> maybe we'll do a, this is brought to you by please don't be gross <laughs> this is brought to you by please don't have sex with 12 year olds oh i just please don't be like that <laughs> i will i will materialize physically in your home and punch you so hard you don't know Oh, we have, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us this episode. If you could like, review, interact with us in any way, shape, or form, I'm still convinced you're all robots. They might be. I don't know. It's hard to say. Make it less hard to say that you're not robots. Like, comment, review, and then we will be back with you on January 23rd, and we've decided we're going to tackle star wars the last jedi so be prepared i have some thoughts <laughs> yeah star wars comes with a lot of pre-existing baggage so get ready to unpack that and thanks for listening we'll see you next time <laughs>